Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is coming from Acts chapter 27, starting in verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. And we're going to jump up now to verse 11 of Acts chapter 28. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. With great honor to God the Father and God the Son 
and God the Spirit to the Father Almighty, our Savior and Lord, and to the one who dwells in every one of us and whose presence is among us here today. And with thanksgiving once again to Pastor Gerald, and to all the elders who kindly allowed me to serve all of you here. Good morning. It is so good to be with you in joy and with the forgiveness of Christ upon every one of us. And we are grateful that he allows us to come and gather and worship his great name. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer at this point, and then let us commence in God's word together. Father, we are grateful today for you giving us grace in Christ. Thank you for being a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Accomplishing that in finality through the death of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Thank you for sending the spirit so that we are not left alone. We are not orphaned here, but we have your very presence with us and in us. So that we can do what is pleasing in your sight. Make us pleasing and holy unto you, O God. Cause us to do the things that honor and glorify the name of Christ. Thank you, Father, that you give us many reminders that we live in a world that has fallen and broken in rebellion to you and in need of redemption. Even, Father, as you have 17 missionaries captured in Haiti, you are reminding us. Oh, God, we ask that you would rescue them, that you would be kind to them, that you also would rescue and restore a whole nation that needs all sorts of infrastructure and kindness medically and in technology and other ways from all the nations of the world. God, there are people there who are hurting from many things. Would you send great aid? Would you restore civility in the country? Would you be the one to send many missionaries there? And then, God, we thank you for the reminders close to us in this violent region. God, we look to you to bring an end to the gun violence that characterizes parts of this region, that you would bless and comfort those families, that you would provide justice mixed with mercy from on high for those who have been victimized, and that you would change the hearts to hearts that are unrepentant, to hearts of righteousness through the preaching of the gospel. So bless us, God. We give you thanks, and we want to be your instruments in a greater way. So now pour out your power upon us and magnify the name of Christ. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. We finally come to the end of the book of Acts and get to the city limits of Rome. We have been looking to get to Rome for the last five chapters because God promised Paul that he would get him there to testify about him. Truthfully, as we're reading Acts, we have been trying to get to Rome and beyond since the time Jesus commissioned the disciples to go to the ends of the earth in Acts 1.8. We're just getting here because we have had some serious obstacles in our journey. Even for the Apostle Paul, there was no beeline to a fulfillment of God's promises and to the fulfillment of the plan of God. 
Just like in your journey in life as a Christian, the apostles' gospel trip came with some setbacks, interruptions, threats, changes to original plans, some mean encounters, hardships, and fears. However, at the end of Acts, nothing ultimately hinders God's gospel-working plan in Paul's life because nothing can limit the sovereign and faithful hand of our God to accomplish what he has said he will do for his own glory. Our story picks up on Malta, where three months after surviving a winter shipwreck, Paul and the passengers finally depart for Rome again. It is a scary proposal to get on another Alexandrian ship, for the last one was lost at sea. If Paul is anything like us, he must be a little hesitant about getting back on a ship after the last voyage almost cost him his life. In the minds of the Roman crew, however, this ship might be safer than the previous ship because it has the Gemini constellation of Castor and Pollux as figureheads. It was thought that sailing under the two sons of Zeus and Leda, the queen of Sparta, would mean good fortune for ships, for they were the deities that watched over sea travel. Yet we know that if the travelers make it from the island of Malta to Rome, it will be God the Father and the Son and the Spirit that will see Paul through and will see the entire crew and ship through on Paul's behalf. It will not be the working of the rotation of the earth to bring into view images we have cast upon the stars fixed in their locations. Horoscopes had the same power in the first century that they have now in the 20th century. Zero. 60 miles north, they make it to the island of Sicily, just off the tip of the boot of the Italian peninsula. Three days later, they make the 75-mile journey to Regium. Then, with the help of a God-sent south wind to push them up the strait, they make the 60-mile journey to Puteoli in the modern-day Bay of Naples, Rome's east entry point in the first century. Paul now is getting so close to Rome that you and I are almost eager with him to get there with the help of the hospitality of believers in Puteoli. Seven days later, Paul and his companions finally get to Rome, the place where the Lord promised him two years earlier that he would make it and testify of Christ. When he gets to Rome, after his many ups and downs at sea, one concludes that completing the Great Commission cannot really be shipwrecked. At times, it looks like the plan of God and the promises of God will be shipwrecked. Literally, in the case of Paul, using literally correctly, of course, 
We see this when the Roman ship carrying Paul is lost at sea for 14 days, being completely blown off course in Acts 27. You and I anticipate shipwreck when Paul steps back onto an Egyptian ship and they start moving from port to port again. Even Paul was a little discouraged by the route and means of getting to the place of God's promise and plan. For not only did Paul give thanks, but Paul took courage, it says in 2815. Paul gave thanks to God because the good God had seen him through vicious countrymen, corrupt governors and kings, a storm that could have put him rock bottom at the final place in the ocean. And he also saw him through a shipwreck that almost had him slaughtered with prisoners. I can imagine Paul crying out to God, Almighty Father, I give you thanks for your hand of goodness and faithfulness to get me from Jerusalem to Rome as you promised. May Messiah Jesus be glorified for his great mercy and grace. Amen. Giving thanks after what Paul has been through, we certainly understand. But what about taking courage? Luke's record of Paul taking courage means that Paul had been shaken up a little bit, that he had a few doubts about ever seeing what God had promised, about God fulfilling his word. Paul was shaken even after God had fulfilled his word on the ship and in the shipwreck, saving everyone's life from starvation, drowning, and murder. This is not the first time that the apostle to the Gentiles, the world traveler and writer of 13 books of the New Testament, had been shaken up a little while trying to tell everyone about Jesus. In Acts 23, 10 through 11, we read similar words. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Similarly, in Acts 18, 9 through 11, we read, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The Lord said the words, do not be afraid, because Paul was wrestling with the temptation to give way to fear in Corinth and possibly depart for another safer city. A good shipwrecking in life can make the best of us just a little bit discouraged. Paul's shipwreck seemed to be in contrast to the Great Commission, but the Lord was in control completely. God is the one 
who wants to see the story of his son reach the ends of the earth. More than any of us, God wants people to meet the one bruised for sinners and raised from the dead to make us righteous before God. God wants us to take the message of Christ to the lost. So he will not allow a few shipwrecks in our lives to stop us from doing his will of proclaiming the gospel. The Lord is with Paul. Paul was allowed to lodge by himself rather than go to prison or to a military camp to be held. Paul because of God, was chained to one man rather than the customary two guards. When Paul could have been alone, the Lord had some brothers meet him on the Appian Way at both the Forum and the Three Taverns, one being about 43 miles away from Rome, the other being about 33 miles away from Rome, respectfully. By the hand of God, these brothers were on Roman soil ahead of Paul to help him make his way on his journey. By himself, the journey on that rough Appian way looked more like being lost at sea. But with the brothers coming, there was hope of the gospel already doing work in Rome. The Great Commission is our commission from our Lord to make disciples faithfully in all nations, among all people, to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, which includes sharing the truth of the gospel vocally to people in our spheres of life. The Great Commission cannot be shipwrecked by anything in our lives. It cannot be shipwrecked by false gods, by rough roads, or even by Roman guards chained to you with a chain. Following his pattern of going to the Jews first, because the Jewish people are the priority in God's plan to glorify himself. Three days after arriving in Rome, Paul calls a meeting with the local Jewish leaders. He wants to head off concern of the Jews in Rome that they might have upon hearing that this troublemaker to the temple and this one who seems to have told people not to follow the customs of Moses, that he is the one who has arrived in Rome. So Paul will launch into the last of his defense speeches recorded in Acts. In his defense, he will make four simple points. First, he is innocent before the Jews. Paul always acted for his people and respected the custom of his ancestors. Second, there are reasons for his imprisonment. Although innocent, the Jews delivered him or handed him over as Paul appealed to Caesar. Paul had appealed so that he could escape injustice, but the Jews wanted to see their brand of justice. Third, the Romans and the Jews had opposite stances toward Paul. Agrippa would have set Paul free if not for his appeal to Caesar. For the Romans found the apostle Paul to be innocent. It was the Jews who wanted him dead despite his legal innocence. Fourth, he is on trial for the hope of Israel. 
That is, Paul is in chains in Rome because he wants to expound to the Jewish people how their hope of a Messiah is found in Jesus. How their hope of gaining the promises to Abraham is found in the crucified son. How the people have a hope of a prophet like Moses to speak to them for God and a hope of a son of David to rule Israel's throne forever and how all of those hopes are tied up in the one who was raised from the dead. Preaching the gospel is Paul's only crime. He wants to make sure that the bad reputation he has gained from the Jews all over the world has not beat him to Rome and made trouble for him. Surprisingly, Paul has unnecessary concerns about being slandered in both his person and his message. He has prepared himself to defend when a defense is not even necessary. Although a letter from Paul to the church at Rome had reached Rome about three years earlier, no letters or reports from diaspora Jews had reached the Jews in Rome. The most the Jews in Rome had heard is that there was this sect called Christianity that was spoken against by the Jews. But Paul's name had not been taken down. So if Paul had something to say, they would be open to hear him, especially if he could set the record straight on this sect of Christianity, the very thing that Paul wanted to do before all the Jews. So truthfully, we see here in Paul that when it comes to getting the gospel to the ends of the earth, continuing our good testimony cannot really be threatened. Paul's fears of false accusation following him are unfounded. The only concern is the one that should be utmost to us all. What are people saying about Jesus? The Jews in Rome heard evil spoken of the Christian message and belief, but not of the messenger. Here Luke provides another reminder to us that the message of the gospel itself is offensive and is the object of our enemy's attack. The belief we share in Christ, shedding blood for our sins, is offensive to people who see themselves as morally good. Our need for forgiveness is offensive to people who assume that God never is displeased with their daily pursuits or thoughts. The resurrection of Christ as the only means by which anyone will be raised from the dead is offensive to people who will consign to hell the likes of Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden, but everyone else is funeralized to he is in a better place now or she is in a happier place now. I was so tempted to say that with a SpongeBob voice. <laughs> Proclaiming the truth of Christ's saving work is offensive and necessary, but the things people say about us might not even stick or even travel ahead of us. Our primary concern, therefore, is to make sure that people cannot say that our gospel message is a sham. Yet, we cannot even present, 
prevent some from calling the gospel a sham. People are going to say bad things about us and Jesus because they do not want Jesus. In the end, however, our good testimonies will stand or be vindicated, even as people are threatened by being held accountable to Jesus. It is not us that they are really after. It's Jesus they do not really want. Jesus will take care of our testimony. We just want to make sure we don't tarnish his testimony. This brings us to the last point in the message. In the last scene of this story, from Paul's life, we are able to see that convincing people of the gospel cannot really be hindered. Convincing people of the gospel cannot really be hindered. On an agreed-upon day, the Jews come in greater numbers than before to hear Paul at his own house. Paul does not have to go to the synagogues. Instead, in his living room, Paul the prisoner speaks all day about the kingdom of God with a Roman guard chained to him listening the whole way. You've got to see Luke's humor here. We have been going up and down, back and forth, shipwreck over here, viper jumping out, clamping on Paul over there. Will he ever get to Rome? He finally gets to Rome so he can preach the gospel to the Jews and the Lord has them come to Paul's living room with Roman guard chained to him and all day Paul gets to talk about the kingdom of God why talk of the kingdom of God all day this is part of the hope that Israel holds in her Messiah that her Messiah will establish God's final rule in power joy victory over her enemies and rest on Israel's every side the Old Testament anticipates the kingdom of God in all the day of the Lord promises of comfort to Israel. The idea of the kingdom of God permeates the Old Testament. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Psalm 10, verse 16. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in his hand are the depths of the earth the heights of the mountain are also his the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land psalm 95 3 through 5 when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers i will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever second Samuel 12 second uh, Samuel 7 verse 12 and following and in the days of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2, 44. The kingdom of God is all through the Old Testament 
And the kingdom of God comes as a renewed hope in the Gospels when the Messiah breaks into this present world with his rule in his hand. The Westminster Shorter Confession asks in question number 26, how is Christ a king? It answers by saying, as a king, Christ brings us under his power, rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. The hope of the kingdom of God is tied completely to Christ's final conquering of all his and all our enemies. Paul will spend all day and night showing the Jewish leaders that the kingdom of God runs through the law of Moses from the creation story through the promise of the restoration of Israel and Judah and the prophets, and he will show that Christ is the king of that kingdom. Paul receives two responses as he preaches the kingdom. Two of the three responses we see consistently in the book of Acts. First, some people are convinced from Paul's explanation of the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel and he is the coming king of the universe. These are people who just needed someone to bring to them the good news of Jesus told in conjunction with the hope of the coming kingdom. These are the people that God has in mind when Paul is shipwrecked. And these are the people that God has concerns about when Paul's reputation is at stake. God already has some hearts prepared to receive the message of truth that Paul will preach. They just needed someone to come to them who sees no obstacles to the working of the plan of God. Second, some doubt and remain unconvinced. There's nothing Paul can do about them, but they also do not get in the way of those who do believe. God is so sovereign that he foresees this moment through the voice of Isaiah the prophet in which Isaiah foretold of the Jewish rejection of the word of the Lord. Yet even this opens the door for the gospel to go to the Gentiles for Paul says he will go to them because they will listen. So if Paul preaches and some Jews believe, the gospel goes forth without hindrance. If Paul preaches and many Jews do not believe, the gospel goes forth to the Gentiles of whom many will accept it. And again, the gospel goes forth without hindrance. For two more years, this is what Paul will do from his living room or from his bedroom or from his rec room. He will preach the gospel and welcome anyone who will hear and neither Rome or the Jews in Rome will put anything in the way of him talking about the kingdom of God and explaining that the Messiah is Jesus. Luke closes a story that opens with the followers of Jesus asking, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel. 
here we see the proclamation of this kingdom, of Jews being convinced of the message of the kingdom, and of Gentiles being convinced of the message of this kingdom. The bookend is here to show us that the task is to proclaim the kingdom of God and not to think about what could get in the way of such proclamation. At the end of reading and preaching through Acts, a self-examining question of Christian formation that would be good for all of us to ask is this. What hinders us from greater participation in and fulfillment of our mission at Calvary Memorial Church? We have said that our mission, our reason for existence as a church, or what we live for as a congregation is that we are making Jesus Christ known in Oak Park and around the world. We recognize that this is a way of speaking of how we intend to be obedient to the Great Commission, to Jesus' command for us to go into the entire world to make disciples of Jesus with the promise from Jesus that he will be with us to the very end, the same way he was with the Apostle Paul until he could get to Rome and preach the gospel from his living room to Jews and a Roman guard and anyone who would come. What is my role in making Jesus known in Oak Park and around the world? And what is your role in making Jesus Christ known in Oak Park and around the world? And that around the world part includes greater Chicagoland. It includes the city of Chicago, the western suburbs in which many of us, like me, live. And it includes the suburbs to the north and south of the city. Maybe a better question to ask would be this. Do we agree that we exist to proclaim Christ and that the gospel's proclamation must be woven into the routines and passions and goals we have for ourselves and our families? As we prosper in this world through the grace that is ours in Christ, we must maintain sight of all people having opportunity to hear the name of Jesus and good news in him. As we have seen and heard in Acts, prescriptively, not simply descriptively, Acts is prescribing stuff for us, not simply describing stuff for us. And all of us, as we have been speaking through Acts, have been trying to distinguish for us the things that are just descriptive from the things that are prescriptive. As we have seen and heard in Acts prescriptively, the earliest believers had at least seven consistent habits that drove the church to reach Rome and leave a gospel witness that would bring the mercy of God in Christ to us 20 centuries later. Here they are. Number one. The early church members had commitments to work together to propel the gospel everywhere, either by going or by supporting those who did. It is a God-awesome thing 
Every time we commission another person or team to give their lives from this stage right here, when the staff and elders come and lay hands on them, and all of us commit to partner them, it is a great thing for us to witness that, that people are going to give their lives to go locally, nationally, or internationally with the gospel. And it is a God awesome thing every time one of your or my children or your grandchildren answers a calling to give their lives to serve. We then are being just like the early church that gave of their whole selves to see that the gospel would go everywhere on the face of the earth. Number two, in Acts, prayer permeates everything as seen in its appearance in 22 of the 28 chapters in Acts, and in the giving of power to the believers to do things like pick leaders with discernment, to learn God's will, and to speak boldly of Christ in the face of threats and opposition. Prayer is everywhere in the book of Acts. Three, they were steadfast in the face of opposition, Understanding that we are part of redemptive history's conflict between the evil one and his seed and between Jesus and we who are the offspring of the woman. They understood that the whole world lied under the sway of the evil one, but Jesus is our king. Number four, they embraced the authentic ethnic cultures of those who joined them, like Barnabas from Cyprus, Lucius of Cyrene, and Lydia of Thyatira. They understood that this is a mission about every tribe, language, people, and nation, and not simply about Jerusalem Jews. Five, they planted churches on soils where Christ's name was not known. Six, they spoke boldly of Jesus. Boldness is repeated in Acts as the manner of gospel proclamation. Boldness concerns speaking strongly at the risk of danger, of, and it does not speak of being brash or arrogant or loud or rude. Rude, excuse me. Boldness is something that is repeated in there to show that the believers, no matter what they face, they said, even if it is dangerous, we are going to preach the message of the gospel. Lord, please give me and all of us more of this kind of boldness. And seven, they offered hospitality to the saints. Their homes all of their homes were outposts and respite centers for the Gospels, as we can see by the selected homes we're invited to along the way in the book of Acts. Somewhere in these seven things are things we each need to review in Acts as we ask the Spirit of God to show us how to honor Him more in each of these things, so that Oak Park, 
greater Chicagoland and the world will know Jesus Christ so that people all over the city and over this great metropolitan area of 9.3 million people will hear that Jesus has paid it all for them and it rescues them from the wrath of God. That Jesus is the one true king. That Jesus is their redeemer and Lord and forgiveness is found in him. Because in the end, there really are no limitations to the gospel getting to the ends of the earth except for the ones that we impose by taking our eye off the sovereign God who got Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, the same sovereign God who wants to see all of us who are part of Calvary Memorial, feel his commission to go to the ends of the earth. Let us pray. Father, we bless you for the grace that is ours in Christ because the early church found grace to be faithful. Because believers in the centuries all along the way gave themselves to see the message of Christ proclaimed around the world. God, thank you for putting us in a church that has experienced your mercy and been faithful to send teams near and far to proclaim Jesus. But God, there are still billions who need to hear and millions within our reach Spirit of God, please bring about revival all over the city and in our hearts and in this place. Give us the boldness that the early disciples had. Do it so that we might be wise in the way we approach those in our spheres who are in need of the message of Christ. Thank you for the blood given for us and the newness of life found in the one raised from the dead. He be glorified in us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.